Hello and welcome to the Barefoot Coaching Make a Change to Make a Difference podcast. I'm Adam and in this series I'll be speaking to inspirational people who have made a change in their lives in order to make a difference. A difference for themselves, for others and for the world at large. Expect real stories, insights and wisdom from coaches and non-coaches alike. This is the Make a Change to Make a Difference podcast. My guest today is a barefoot trained executive coach, author, educator, and speaker. As well as running her own consultancy, she's a professor of practice and an educator in leadership, inclusive leadership, and change at Duke Corporate Education, Rotterdam School of Management, and Holt Executive Education. Last year, she published her debut book, The Model Black, which was then recommended by the Financial Times as a timely exploration of race in the workplace. A very warm welcome, Barbara Banda. Hi, thanks very much and really delighted to be here. Well, I'm so pleased that you're here with us. Thank you. Welcome to Barefoot HQ. I'm so excited to talk to you because from our chat beforehand, it was very obvious that we were going to have fun together. But also, and this is particularly exciting for me, I got the sense of despite our obvious differences, Mm -hmm. we actually have a lot in common. And I had a feeling that that idea of difference is going to be a theme throughout our conversation. So I'm very excited about that. Yes, and I think it almost certainly will be because you already mentioned the debut book and that is very much around difference and visible difference, but it also speaks to a lot of people around invisible difference as well. So... So thank you for raising that. So Barbara, I know that you completed the Barefoot Flagship Coach Training Programme in 2020. And we'll get on to talk about what that experience was like for you, particularly right at the start of lockdown, actually, and and being online and how that experience was for you. But I'd like to start, if that's okay, with talking about how you came to coaching what were you what were you doing before you found your way to barefoot right i did quite a lot of things before i found my way to barefoot and you know maybe show my age here a little bit but i kind of had a, a couple of careers so i worked in international marketing in the healthcare pharmaceutical sector actually worked a little while at a company not very far from the barefoot head office for for boots yes. for many years for their pharmaceutical division so see we do have the something first thing in we common. Have. yes <laughs> <laughs> so i yeah did that work for about 13 years, and then kind of pivoted into the business school world, working initially for Ashridge Business School, and concurrently also working as an associate at that time for Rotterdam School of Management. So did that from 2000 for about 17 years, doing both of those things, fabulous time, did my doctorate while I was doing that, worked with some amazing companies, met some colleagues with whom, many of whom I'm still really close. So a great experience. And as with all good things, they, they come to an end. And I made the choice to leave that job that I'd been in for 17 years and to work for myself, completely work for myself. So I almost feel I'm kind of on my third stage of life with this no longer new endeavour, but working for myself, really being able to choose the work that energises me has been a, a fabulous change. And that was partly what brought me to coaching. How utterly fabulous. I'm interested in the pivot because actually quite Mm. a big change to go from the work that you were in to then education and finding your way to Ashridge, you know, really well-respected 
business school. So how did that Talk to me about the pivot. That's quite interesting. It was, again, it was another point of change in my life. I think I'd got two small children. I was working, I'd moved from pharmaceuticals actually into retail and Uh it didn't really agree with me. So it was a very different kind of environment. And when I'd made the change from pharmaceutical to the the, the kind of retail side of Boots, yes. I'd had lots of career coaching. So lots of support around what was it I really wanted to do. And I thought I'd love to teach, but I couldn't see at that time a way to move into teaching. I then ended up in a role that on the surface I enjoyed, but wasn't really feeding my soul. So that was the point at which I thought, well, all that careers coaching I had, let me go back to it and let me think about how I could do something where I could educate people in a way that kind of still pays the bills in a good way, because that that was quite important at that time as well. And and really energises me. And and I went, it was interesting, I, I remember going to Ashridge for the interview and thinking, I love it here. I love what they do. I love that mix between theory and practice. Right. Uh, and it's interesting. I've almost come full circle because that's what Barefoot is so <laughs> so fantastic at, that mix between theory and practice. Absolutely. So that was how I made that pivot. And, you know, one of the wonderful things about Ashridge was they often said, if you can teach, if you're able to explain things to people, we can help you with the concepts and the ideas. And if you've got the experience of having worked in in an environment where you, you know, you're dealing with strategy, you're dealing with change, that clearly gives the participants a lot of confidence. This isn't an ivory tower business school. These are people who've done real jobs. Yes. I love that. And you're so right. That beautiful blend of, of theory and practice. What sort of, if any exposure to teaching as you had in your career or life up to that point where you rock up to gorgeous Ashridge for your interview? Actually, relatively little. I'm just trying to remember whether I said that at the interview now, but it says long enough ago, I think, to be... Well, to it be, doesn't matter it doesn't now, matter yeah. Anymore. I think relatively little. My parents were very religious right. and I was brought up in the Pentecostal church and I did work as a Sunday school teacher. Gosh. So... I guess when I go back, I did do a lot of work at that time, working with young children. So not teenagers, but young children teaching them stuff. So I guess that was my taste of educating other people. And I also think, or I, I noticed before I made the move, that when I was presenting to groups, when I was interacting with groups, that gave me a real energy. And so in many ways, although I hadn't got real life experience, I knew I wanted to do it. And somewhere in the back of my mind was probably my time of life before I became 18, when I was there teaching little ones in Sunday school. Gosh, and practicing using your voice. Yes, that's very true. How marvellous. Yes. So from pharmaceuticals then to teaching at Ashridge. How long did you work at Ashridge? So I worked for Ashridge for 17 years and I started there as a marketing stroke um, strategy faculty because I'd been, I'd come into the world from 
working in international marketing, sales, business development strategy. Right. That was my background. So I, that was how I arrived. And for the first two or three years, that's what I did. I did marketing. I did business. And, you know, I tell the story. I talk about it in my book. And it's very true that I can't remember, probably about 2002, 2003, my boss came into my office and said, oh, Barbara, we've won a huge piece of work for a, a national broadcaster. Ooh. I need to say no more. Okay. Um, yeah. He said, we're going to have thousands of leaders coming through the doors. And I'm thinking, yes, this is a leadership and change program. And he said, we need some diversity. Right. And I had a choice. I could either have folded my arms, leaned back and thought, so this is tick box stuff. Mm -hmm. Or I could lean in and think, this could offer me something really interesting, an opportunity to learn, to develop in a new and different direction. And I embraced it. And it was phenomenal. I, I got to work with people who were in, at that time, what was Ashridge Consulting. Okay. They had a very different perspective on the world, a very different way of working with groups than we did on the business school side. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. Got deeper into the area of leadership and did a lot more of that work both at Ashridge and at the time at Rotterdam School of Management. So it provided me with a great opportunity and almost, uh, to use your word, another pivot, <laughs> another change, <laughs> another move into something else. So yes. yes, it was great. I really get that sense from listening to you, how much you enjoyed that time, which is lovely. Yeah. You talked about diversity mm. and I'm interested because I have an assumption in my head, which I just want to check mm. out with you, of what the diversity landscape looked like in that organisation at the oh, time you joined. I think that's a great question because when I went to Ashridge, I was the only black person on the faculty at that time. I think they'd previously had a black man who'd left. Right. And so I was definitely the only black woman, probably for at least 10 years, maybe 12 years. Gosh. So I was the only permanent person of colour there. Yes. So, and, and in some ways that mirrored other aspects of my life. So I was the only one of two or three black people in my grammar school. Right. Yeah, I was one of two black people on my undergraduate program. Mm -hmm. I was the only black person when I did my MBA. So this wasn't a new world to me. Yeah. I, you know, there I was, I was the black woman and I had to understand how to navigate this environment. And whilst Ashridge is a fabulous place, it was also very middle class. Yes. So there was a colour element. And for me, there was also a class element that I, I had to navigate. So, mm. you know, what's wonderful with, I think, a lot of the work that we do with coaching, with development, sometimes it's only when you look back yes. that you recognise some of the changes you made, some of the ways that you adapted. Mm. And I notice now how I adapted myself, how I hid aspects of myself. Of course. Um, because I, I had to fit in. I and it was a it was a wonderful environment and there was a degree of internal competition to get work. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, so you, you had to be good and you had to be what the clients wanted. Yes. So, you know, that was what made the organization great. And it was also what made it a very interesting and challenging environment to work in. This is quite a big question because I'm totally with you around the power of perspective and of looking back. It's only by looking back that actually we can see 
things for what they really are. And I'm wondering how you sort of view yourself looking back versus the you that sat here, Barbara Bander, the author, the professor. So hmm, that is a, a deep question. How do I see myself looking back? I think to answer that question, I almost have to go back to growing up. And if I go back, I think of my parents, first generation migrants come to this country, really emphasizing the importance of education. Ah. So not terribly well educated themselves. My father can hardly read or write, but the importance of education was pushed through us. My dad despite his challenges, became a trade unionist. So the idea of what was right, of justice, yes. that was again a really strong theme in my life growing up. So if I look back, I was brought up with this idea of you need to be educated and you need to do what's right. Yes. You really shouldn't compromise. You should do what's right. So if I look back on myself, those were the kind of values that I was given as I was brought up. And then when I left higher education, reality hits you. Yes. Yeah, you go into a workplace where you are the only person who's different. And, and I didn't think about it. I just thought, I'm different here. I'm mm. going to have to work out how I need to be to get on. So if I look back at Barbara, Barbara fitted in quite nicely. Barbara did all the right things, learned to smile at the right moments. Barbara realised she couldn't get angry. Barbara recognised the importance of adapting to the environment in which she found herself. Mm. And in doing so, Barbara had to hide a lot of elements of who she really was. And for me, and you know, obviously I can only speak about myself, is I hid my blackness. I never spoke about race, you know, and if I look back, you know, I never introduced myself to groups as I'm of West Indian heritage. I just never did that. Mm. So as I look back, that was a woman who fitted in nicely, didn't talk about her heritage and too many pivots here. <laughs> you know, if I think about the time since I left full-time employment, I've been much more able to embrace that side of my identity and feel much more whole. And that doesn't mean I necessarily do my work differently, but maybe I feel different about how I do the work. 99% of my work is with non-Black audiences. That Those are the people I'm familiar with. And I love that. I, I really, truly love that work. <laughs> and I wonder how much better I am now at doing that work. Now I'm 100% Barbara, yes. not... 60, 70 or 80% Barbara. I mean, what's really beautiful now is the version of yourself, which is 100% Barbara, 100% you, is now sharing your experience to the benefit of others through this absolutely fabulous book, The Model Black, which is you through and through. The narrative, mm. the stories, the tone, it's genuine, it's authentic, it's impactful. Mm. And we're going to make sure we talk about that later as well. Yes, it's, yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? As you, you know, there is something about looking back, thinking about how you've grown, how you've developed. I'm here in the Barefoot offices and, you know, Barefoot has played a, a big role in that as well. And I think what is so lovely, even as you look back, is realising you can always learn, you can always develop. 
when I came to Bear, I mean, you you talked in the introduction about the fact that I'd got five degrees, and that that was great. Yes, including a doctorate, and there is always space to learn and grow. And Barefoot was able to add to that. You know, I think that's what's beautiful about life. It's embracing that idea that you never know everything. There's always space to develop and also bringing that out in the people around you. That's actually what gives me real joy. Thank you so much. Let's talk about then how you came to Barefoot. So let's <laughs> let's zoom in on one of those pivots, mm -hmm. the change that brought about you thinking, mm -hmm. oh, hang on, I think I might like to train as a coach. Talk to me a bit about that. Yes, I think that had been kind of a little bit embryonic almost at the time I left Ashridge as I was trying to think about what do I want the balance of my practice to be? And I'd done some wonderful work around leadership, inclusive leadership, change, all of those things. And it was actually through doing work with my coach, who I've had for many, many years, that we started to think about how much I enjoyed a lot of the one-to-one -one work I was right. doing and how much of a change you can bring about in others through that one-to-one -one work. And that's not to take anything away from group work, but there was something quite special that can happen in those one-to-one -one conversations. Yes. And I was already having some of those conversations in the work that I was doing. And quite honestly, I was already doing a lot of coaching. So I'd done a coaching program previously, but hadn't got a qualification. Mm -hmm. So at the point I came to Barefoot, I had had really positive experiences. I'd been through an Ashridge program, if you think I'd done my doctorate at Oxford. So I was looking for something with really good theoretical underpinnings, mm -hmm. something that would give me an opportunity to get a qualification, because I feel that's really important in the, the coaching world, and a program that would offer really good opportunities to practice. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of research, and I did look at Barefoot, and I did think, are they as good as they sound? And I ended up at one of the, it was a virtual event to understand more about it. Yes, the taster sessions. Yeah, exa exactly, the taster session. And, you know, I can't remember the details, but I do remember the feeling it left me with. And the feeling was, this is the right place for me. I'm going to learn here. I'm going to grow here. And I'm going to meet some really lovely people. Mm. So that was the feeling I had. I don't remember the content. I don't remember the format. <laughs> but I left thinking, this is going to be a worthwhile investment. How fabulous. There are two things that strike me from what you shared. And the first one is this idea that your experience of coaching began way before you arrived at our taster session. Mm -hmm. And that's also a really helpful thing to remind people who are thinking maybe of coming to Barefoot and training as a coach. There'll be so much experience that people like yourself will be bringing with them. Nobody starts from scratch. And no doubt the skills that you acquired as a professor, as a teacher, were probably a lot of coaching skills. The power of asking open questions, the power of saying, and what else, rather than mm -hmm. Anything else? <laughs> yes. You know, those those really little things. So I love that you've pulled that out because that's a really important thing for people listening to think because we can sort of think, oh, you know, I haven't got any coaching experience or, you know, I haven't coached anybody, but actually there's so much wealth of 
of experience that people will be bringing with them. And the second thing, which I'm particularly interested in, is one of your reasons for choosing Barefoot being the qualification element, the academic element. And I'm wondering if we could talk about that for a second. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Because as you may or may not know, Barefoot's founder and CEO, Kim Morgan, was a pioneer of university approved coach training we were one of if not the but we have to say one of because we don't know for sure the very first coach training organizations to offer a postgraduate certificate as part of the program and therefore that academic element is incredibly important to us so much so that before we were ICF accredited we had that relationship with the University of Chester and we offered the postgraduate certificate and at that point pretty much everybody did it Many of those people then went on to complete a master's and we have a select few who even went on to complete PhDs. But although it's still a popular route, what we're noticing is that fewer and fewer people are taking that route and instead choosing not to pursue the academic route. And I'm interested with someone who is an educator and you've been surrounded by academia for so many years, you're a professor yourself and hold, if we didn't make it clear at the start, five degrees. <laughs> what your view on the value of academic qualifications is in general, but also in the coaching space? Yes. And again, a really good question because we get academic qualifications for all kinds of reasons. You know, if, if I think of myself, when I did my PhD, I wanted an Oxbridge qualification at that point. So there were certain boxes that I wanted to tick. And in some ways, did I choose the right institution for me? Not sure. But that was what I wanted at that particular time. So I guess the point I'm making here is that there are different reasons for choosing institutions and for doing an academic qualification. I needed that qualification on my route to becoming professor of practice. So I do think academic qualifications are important. There is a danger that we do them for the sake of it. Mm. Yeah, so there is that risk. However, I feel quite strongly in the coaching sphere, they're critical. Mm. I have to say, I feel quite strongly. So when I did the Barefoot programme, I immediately went on to do the postgraduate certificate because I think what's really important as a coach is to spend some time reflecting on your practice and really thinking about how you are growing and developing on as a coach and getting somebody else's feedback around that. And I don't know what other coaching qualifications look like, but what I do know is this University of Chester element that Barefoot has, whereby you really look at, you look at your own cases and you also hold a mirror up to yourself as a coach. How am I showing up in that coaching conversation? What is it that I bring from my past, from my experience that has an impact on that interaction I'm having in that moment with the other person? So all of that I think is quite critical. So I have to say, I feel quite strongly that the academic part of the coaching should be an essential part of becoming a coach. And, you know, we also know that there are lots of coaches out there and there are many, many brilliant coaches. We know that. But what we also know is not all people have some kind of qualification. And one of the ways that you can at least get a sense of people's expertise and their willingness to be critical, to be reflexive in their coaching practice, is the extent to which they've done some kind of academic qualification 
and importantly, an academic qualification that invites them to reflect on themselves and their practice. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, thank you so much because we are obviously of exactly the same opinion. And I think there's there's two more things that have come up for me here. The first is that the process of writing those essays, the three essays, works to solidify the experience, to really drive home the critical reflection around what I experienced, what that means in terms of what I thought I knew before and what I know now, and what that means then for how I might choose to be different going forward. That's the real beauty of it. And the second thing is for people like me, who I left school with GCSEs, the postgraduate certificate offers people like me the opportunity to achieve university level education for the very first time at any, you know, ripe old age, which I also just think is really fabulous. And and we're particularly proud of that here at Barefoot. Yes. And what you've also brought out, which I think is also important, is that, you know, there were people on the programme that I did that didn't have university education, that hadn't done degrees before. And some of them have gone on to do the postgraduate certificate. So I think it's also important to say that, that psychologically it might feel like a, a higher hurdle and it's more than achievable. And the beauty of it is that it's about yourself. You know, we we all love to reflect on, think about ourselves. And yeah, that's part of the beauty of the process. It's in many ways, once you get into it, it gets richer as you go through it. <laughs> I don't know whether that's been your experience, but that yeah, was certainly mine. It absolutely has. And, yeah. and we also know that when, and we're going to talk about your experience of completing the programme, but what we hear all the time is when it does come to an end in terms of the sort of the taught element of the programme, it can feel sad. Mm. And a way to extend that barefoot experience can be through through going on to complete the essays. So it doesn't have to stop at the end of the programme, folks. Yeah, and that's very well supported, that process as well. Yes, wonderfully supported by Val here and by our wonderful friends at the University of Chester. So, thank you. So, let's go back a little while. You attended an online taster. Well, this was in 2020 because we've yes. gone online. And then talk me through then what happened next. Well, for me, it was a very quick decision. I think I enrolled probably the next day or the day after um, <laughs> in the programme because it was online, it was easier for me to schedule as it happened as well. And also because I think it wasn't anticipated that there was going to be lockdown. So I was part of what Barefoot calls OL1, the online first group. You were the pioneers. Indeed. So we were there together. I enrolled very quickly. We We got started, I think, a couple of months after that. And I also immediately started to clock up my hours Ah. for the ICF qualification. Fabulous. Because I think it starts the day that you start the programme. So I went back to previous clients, people I'd worked with, to ask how we might do some kind of exchange. So I would give them coaching in exchange for something else. Um, So I started that process really very, very quickly. We got started. It all felt a bit weird in the sense that looking back, we're now all very familiar with being online. At that moment, it didn't feel quite so familiar. We were all there in a Zoom call. We're all trying to work out how do you work Zoom? Oh no, I've suddenly exited the meeting without realising. So hiding the washing in the background. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Exactly not knowing how to blur the background. You're quite, quite right. So all of that was there. And all of it, there was also a real calmness in the facilitators, the, the barefoot tutors, there was a a calm that they brought that said, it's all okay. 
you're safe here. And in many ways, I think that was so important at that time. We've got lockdown. None of us knew how long lockdown was going to last. None of us knew what life post-COVID was going to be like. Some of us had relatives who were ill. So all of that was happening. So in some ways, Barefoot offered a kind of holding space, uh, that it was a safe space. Mm. You know, it was also, you know, the George Floyd time. Yes. That all happened. And the idea that there was a, a group of people that I could connect with, where I could talk about how I was feeling, you know, talk about how I was feeling on a professional level, on a personal level. Mm. You know, at that time, I'd got all of my family back home. All three daughters were back home. I'd got my mother who was with us during lockdown. So there was something about being able to escape to my study and feel really well held yeah. by the, the, the barefoot tutors at that time. I'm so pleased that you had that experience because of course it could easily have gone the other way with everything that was going on, the pursuit yeah. of the course and, and the programme could have easily tipped you into overwhelm or tipped one into overwhelm. But actually mm. you found comfort in it is the sense I get. Yes, I found it a lot of comfort. And again, as I said, this this is a kind of first online thing and you think, well, how's it going to work? Am I really going to get to know these people well? Mm. Am I really going to connect? And there was almost a sense that I, I was meeting people who I'd met lots of times before. <laughs> you know, the first conversation, everyone felt safe enough to open up, to start to talk about the, you know, their life, the challenges they were facing. So it was great. And what was, you know, also interesting was at a certain moment after that, being able to physically meet. I don't think we met for at least a year, actually, many right. of us, because we're locked down, opening. It was all that kind of stuff. Yes. But and you'd have been all over the country we as well. Were all over the world. Wow. We okay. had we had someone who was, I think, based in Spain. We had someone based in Luxembourg. So, oh, you know, all Europeans, nice. but in a sense, it was a, not a UK-based programme, sure. which is also the strength of doing it online. It absolutely is. And, and now we're really fortunate that we've delivered this programme in I think over 28 countries now, which is just absolutely fabulous. And you're so right. The diversity of experience and of thought that that brings together on our programmes now is what we think is one of its, just one of its real benefits. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. So at the point that you enrolled onto the programme, did you have any particular thought about the kind of coach you wanted to be after or perhaps in what context you wanted to use coaching? To an extent, yes. So... I did know I wanted to do executive coaching. That was quite clear in my mind. So I wanted to to work predominantly with people in organisations. So I think that was quite clear in my mind. In terms of what kind of coach I wanted to be, in many ways, I was clear on what kind of coach I didn't want to be. So <laughs> Equally as so, helpful. So, so I didn't want to be some kind of formulaic coach, yeah. Yeah, some kind of tick box coach. So there was something about how could I both work with my intuition and work with models and how could I somehow blend that in some way that was as much as I knew I wanted to be able to be intuitive and work with the frameworks the models almost in my mind I felt I wanted to work with them in a light touch way yes. and that was also part of what I liked about barefoot you've got all these models there are all these ways you can work and if you choose not to use any of them, that's yes. fine. <laughs> and if you choose to embrace lots of them, that's also fine. Yes. So there was that sense that I thought, I'm not going to let 
barefoot, make me a model-based coach. And that's not their philosophy. So that was what was clear in my mind. That was what I wasn't going to be. How fabulous. And you're right. I'm glad that you had that experience. And I'm also pleased that so many other people do as well. One of the most common questions that we get asked by people, you know, picking up the phone and talking to us about the programme is, what sort of coach will your programme make me? And it's our greatest joy to say, you can apply these tools, these techniques, these models in any field of life. And our wonderful alumni, with you included, has evidenced that in the real diversity and richness of all of their coaching practices and some really interesting niches, which yeah. we've talked about in previous episodes, and some incredible generalist coaches as well. And that's one of the things I particularly valued about my barefoot experience was you can use some of the models or you can use none of the models. And actually it can be a meeting yeah. of two spirits and we can yes. connect without the use of a tool. That's true. And there's a, a further aspect as well. You know, my girls said they think I've become a better parent. So there's also how a lot of the the things that you notice, the ways of behaving, some of the patterns that you've got yourself that, that you might notice in coaching, those are also patterns that you have in your personal life why wouldn't you? And, you know, I've got adult daughters who do say, can I give you some feedback, mommy? And, <laughs> and you know, a lot of that feedback is now around, yet yeah, you are present with us more. You are listening more. You're less solution focused. So, you know, my girls, they often still ring me up and they say, um, mommy, I just want to talk today. I don't want an answer to my problems. Contrasting. Yeah, yeah contra <laughs> oh, that's true. That is your <laughs> beautiful. It's beautiful. clearly rubbing off. <laughs> it is, absolutely. So, yeah, so it's about your personal life as well. And that leads us beautifully on to then, having had the experience that you've had on the programme, what advice would you give to anybody listening who is thinking that they might like to dip their toe in as well? It's an interesting one, isn't it, giving people advice? Because on the one hand, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So as you're looking for a programme, you're kind of a bit kind of, unconsciously incompetent in terms of knowing what's out there and what's possible. I think I would say look around because I think there's no harm in, in looking around, exploring. I think it's really important to have some kind of taster session mm -hmm. um, to get a sense of who you're going to be working with, to get a sense of whether there is, you know, a chemistry between you and the programme that you're thinking of investing in, yeah. because it is very much an investment. And I would also say, come with an open spirit to whatever program you, you end up with. Come with that real openness. So it's, it's really difficult for me to give advice because I can't believe how much I enjoyed the barefoot experience. So I feel I'm biased. I feel I'm, you know, I feel I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working for Pepsi and, and then saying to people, well, look at Coca-Cola, but really drink Pepsi. Hi, Kim. Hi, Adam. You know, I was thinking, there really is no single route to arriving at the Barefoot Coach Training Programme, is there? No, there isn't. People come from all walks of life, from the armed forces to aromatherapy, HR to hairdressing and teaching to taxi driving. But regardless of where they arrive from, they all share the same desire, and that is to make a change, to make a difference. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So whether people listening want to coach friends and family, coach at work, or in a new career as an accredited coach, when it comes to coach training, no two journeys are the same. You can find out where the Barefoot Line can take you by visiting barefootcoaching.co.uk. Hello, welcome back. We've refreshed our drinks and we're ready to go for part two. How's it feeling so far? How's it feeling so far? 
I'm enjoying it. I said to you, it almost feels like a bit of therapy, which is um, <laughs> slightly strange, really. So there, there's something really positive, isn't there, about this medium that really does feel like I'm talking to an old friend. Yes, I'm glad you it feel really, that Yeah, way. it really feels like that. Marvellous. Yeah. Let's talk then about what you've ended up doing with your coaching experience that you learned on the course. So you said at the start that you came at the programme thinking that you were wanting to, to be an executive coach. How's that worked out for you? I have to say it's worked out very well. So I've been able to use the coaching in lots of different ways. First of all, it's actually helped my facilitation skills. So it's added to those. So that's been fabulous. I'm also doing a lot more one-to-one -one executive coaching now, which is exactly what I wanted to do. I have some wonderful clients. I'm a barefoot associate coach. So no, I'm doing some beautiful work through and for barefoot as well in that process as well. So more of my practice is around coaching than it was before I did the barefoot program. And I've got a greater degree of confidence with that as well. That's how I've been using it. Tell me more about the confidence. Um, it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because as I said, I, I'd been doing coaching before and I, I felt I was doing it really well and I enjoyed it. And knowing that you've been through a rigorous programme, having spent that time reflecting on your work, it makes you sit up a bit taller or it makes me sit up a bit taller in that work and feel that I really am being the best coach I can be for my clients. And that, that's really important. Mm. As you started to talk, I had this image and it could be completely off of you teaching. And I imagine you at the front of an auditorium and lots of people. Is that how it was? Yes. Okay, yes. Go on. Fabulous. Yes, yes. And then also thinking about what you shared at the start, which was the joy that you discovered in working with people one-on-one. -on -one. And I suppose in that sense, it's not a surprise for me. If you spent so long talking to what? hundred people? Well, usually a bit smaller than that. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So somewhere between 20 and 40 people would okay. typically be, yeah. Still a big yes. group though. Yes. To then be able to focus on one person, one face, one story. I was about to say it must have been nice. But... It's beautiful. I mean, there is, there is something very special, very intimate about that one-to-one -one coaching conversation where you really do have that unconditional positive regard towards the person that you're talking to and that person feels they can share with you things that they in many cases haven't even shared with their family or their partners so to create that environment where you you have that real intimacy I can't describe it as anything else intimacy almost bordering on love really with that person in that space and to feel that there is nothing restricting your ability to do that. And, and I'm not saying that before I did the Barefoot programme, I suddenly, I felt restricted, I couldn't do it well, but somehow I'm less restricted. And it feels like a much more natural process, a process that flows better for me and hopefully feels really good for the clients. Mm. Talk to me a bit about the type of coaching that you do with the people mm. who come to you and say, Barbara, I'd like you to be my coach. You know, a lot of it depends on where I meet my client. So where am I meeting them? What do they need? Is it about their career? Is it about their personal life? Where am I meeting them at that moment? 
and what do they need from me? And in many ways, what do they need me to be in that moment for them, for them to feel that they're moving on? So there isn't a cutout version of me that shows up. It depends on that particular client and their needs. So, you know, I, I may talk to someone and, and, you know, I spoke to someone relatively recently who was thinking of engaging with me about what that experience might be like. And, you know, I, I really talked about the fact that there is no formula, talked about the fact that it will depend on what her needs are, talked about the importance of contracting, talked about the importance of us bringing her line manager in if it's necessary, not saying we'll only bring the line manager in at the first meeting if, if there's a need to bring them in later on, we'll do that as well. Talked about the importance of us giving feedback to each other as well. So it's a really interesting question. What is that experience like and, and what do I talk to them about? We also know, don't we, that that coaching relationship is so dependent on the relationship. Yeah. So, you know, I suspect that in the same way when I was choosing my coach, probably about four or five minutes into the conversation, that person knows yeah. whether or not it feels right for them. Yes. And, you know, I always say to people at the end of any kind of conversation I have with them, even if they say, yes, I'm ready to go, I say, no, I think it's really important you take some time out to reflect on this. I also think it's important to perhaps talk to one other person mm. so that you get a sense of, is this really right for me? Yes. That's made me think of the synergy to your experience on our taster session. You described that as a chemistry session. Yes. You were sort of trying out us just as your clients would get a sense from you. And I imagine yes. from a taster session point of view, you probably got a sense early on whether these are your people or not. Yes, exactly, exactly. You're quite right. You're quite right. And what I do enjoy is the diversity in the clients that I'm coaching. Mm. So all kinds of differences in the clients that I've got. And that's beautiful as well. Can we talk about difference then? Yeah. You've written and spoken about the importance of understanding and connecting to those who are different from us. This is something that I also care about a lot. And I'm interested in why you think it's so important that we seek out difference. People who look different to us, behave differently, think differently, and the power that that can bring. Yeah, and that brings power, doesn't it, on many levels. You know, we, we know it brings power on an organisational level. Yeah, there's lots of research that says lots of different people come together. Somehow it's it's much better than if everybody has that, that kind of group think or, or thinks the same way. So it works on that level. And there's a whole piece, isn't there, about unlocking talent. And it, it sounds a bit cliche as I say it in that way. <laughs> but there is something really about how do you bring out the best in everyone and you bring that out by giving them space to be more of themselves, whatever that means for that person. And for some people, being more of themselves might be exactly the way they show up at the moment. Mm. For other people, being more of themselves might be bringing other aspects of themselves to work, talking about their home life, talking about differences in their lived experience. So giving people that space just in my experience, just helps to unlock 
different ways of thinking, unlock creativity, and and more importantly, in many ways, unlock a kind of humanity. Yes. Yeah, there's that human connection that becomes stronger when people are able to bring more elements of their difference into any room, into any kind of conversation. You're absolutely right, because, of course, if we are withholding elements of ourselves because we feel as though it's not a safe environment to be able to be ourselves from my own experience and I can only speak from my own experience that does put a blocker in the way of connection of being able to connect with people and actually let's be honest connect with an organization if we feel I'm not fully brought in because actually I don't feel like I'm able to bring my full self to this place or to this person. That's so much the case. And organisations have this wonderful ability to kind of shame people into behaving in a certain way. We, we know that's kind of one of the things that they do. So if you if you behave in a certain way and it's not the right way, you get the signals that that's not the right way and you then move into being more of what they want you to be, which for many people means not bringing some of that rich difference, yes. which is so important. Yes, which of course then is only made more prominent by organisations placing pieces of paper in front of people with, this is the stuff you need to know to be able to work here. This is how you need to be to work here. And actually here are some positive indicators that let us know you're on the right track. And actually, if you're doing some of these things, then that's not okay. You know, the knowledge, skill, behaviour, competency frameworks, um, mm. which don't provide space then for people to be able to bring themselves. And um, I don't mind sharing that in the break, we were talking in the kitchen about my own experience and mm. how only now, having been at Barefoot for, I think it would be two years this summer, mm. do I feel like I am me, that I'm able mm. to be totally who I am. And actually for me, a big part of that is what I wear. Mm. You know, how I dress is a reflection of who I am inside. And of course, you know, in mm. big organizations, there are dress codes, right? Mm. You know, men wear a shirt and tie and ladies wear this and you know, whatever it might be. Um, mm. And yeah, through my experience of, mm. you know, leaving corporate life and working for an organization that encourages me to be my, my authentic self, which the phrase authentic self gets battered around a lot, doesn't mm. it? On social mm. media, the aim is to try and be one's authentic mm. self. But actually, I've, for me, it's been a, a lived experience of coming out, as I described to you in the kitchen, <laughs> a second coming out as yes. who I really am. Yes. Yeah. And that's so important from a, from a well-being perspective, isn't it? Yeah. Because if you're not able to at least bring most of what you want to bring to in the work environment, that can cause stress, that can cause illness. So as a broader well-being thing, it, it's got to be good. Mm, absolutely. On the topic of difference, I'm also interested in your view on the benefits, perhaps the downsides, if there are any, of difference within coaching relationships. And I'll start by sharing my own experience of actually some of the most successful coaching assignments that I set up and managed in my corporate life were ones that at their core were about difference. White, middle-class man, black woman of Kenyan heritage, the two mm -hmm. come together and everybody told me it wouldn't work. And you know what? Those assignments were some of the most successful coaching assignments. And I'm mm -hmm. interested in what you think about that. You know, we talked earlier, didn't we, about the whole relationship piece. So in many ways, it doesn't matter how similar or different you are, as long as that relationship piece is in place. Mm. So I think that's the first thing I would say. So you can have someone who's completely different from yourself. 
It doesn't mean that you can't coach them. If there's a click, if somehow, you know, it feels right, it's going to work. So difference doesn't matter. On one level, it doesn't matter. On another level, so I've coached people who are completely different myself. So, you know, as a black woman, 95% of the people I coach are different from myself. However, there have also been situations where I've opened my screen, it's a black woman, and she'll say, there's so much I don't have to say to you, Barbara, because you get it. So there's that element as well that says, we get it. We know the experience. Yeah. So we start at a different level. Mm -hmm. So there are both of those elements. No, it doesn't matter. And for some people, there is a sense that there's so much that I don't need to explain in this coaching relationship. Yeah. Whilst we as coaches still also have to avoid that if we're in that situation, we don't make assumptions. Yes. So... Yeah, assumptions yep. based on our own experience. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. I get that. Yeah. When I left the programme, the Barefoot Coaching programme, my niche was people from the LGBTQ plus community. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that for me was around a sense of safety. I mm. felt as though these are my people. Mm. So therefore, there is so much that doesn't need to be said because we get it. I get the the bits that we hide of ourselves and why and I get the history and the pain and the suffering and mm. and actually for a lot of those coaching assignments they were those sort of shared but not shared experiences because we're all going off on our own paths at the same time were actually really beneficial because we were able to get mm. straight to the heart of what the problem was very mm. early on without the sort of tiptoeing around stuff mm. and the coaching people who were very similar to me actually you know I was taking so much to supervision because it was bringing up all sorts of things for me in terms of my own past experience mm. and triggers and actually became towards the end really tricky actually what you've said is so beautiful because that's almost mirrored a bit of my experience in some ways when I'm coaching people who are different to myself in some ways I can take a bit more distance you know, we know as coaches, we are professional and we're human. Yes. Let's not forget that. So when people are different, yes, I can take that distance. It's in some ways it's easier. And I mean that I'm using that word lightly. Yeah, because no coaching is easy. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm using that word lightly. Not if you're doing um, it well. Not if you're doing it well. But there is something I think which I've really just connected with in what you've said that when it's about people, black people, the issues they face, the pain that for me is something I have to take to supervision as well. Mm -hmm. Because there is something that, exactly as you said, it triggers something, something quite deep within yourself. Mm -hmm. And that brings us also back full circle to some of the stuff that we talked about before. You need supervision, but equally, it's also why I think the importance of that qualification, the importance of reflecting on what you're doing, the importance of understanding yourself better. So, all of that is so important. That's what makes you a more rounded coach. Yes. And thank heavens that we have the tools to be able to self-serve when it comes to those things. Yeah. Because can you imagine if we were carrying this sense of feeling and we weren't equipped to be able to figure out why am I feeling this way? Why has yes. this conversation left me feeling so uneasy? Why am I fidgeting? So, you know, I think, again, the power and the benefit of critical self-reflection yes as coach practitioners for anybody who is listening who hasn't 
heard the term coaching supervision or doesn't know what it is, would you be happy, Barbara, just to share a line about your experience of coaching supervision, what it is and how it benefits you as a coach practitioner? Coaching supervision really helps. It's another process that helps you to reflect on your practice. It's a kind of third person outside of that coaching relationship where you can bring challenges, you can bring thoughts, you can just bring what you're doing every day to get somebody else's perspective on that so that you're not doing it totally on your own. Supervision is essential. So it's really important that you've got somewhere to go to get a sense of how am I doing in my coaching practice? Yes. And it's not to say that that supervisor is going to judge you or mark you, but that supervisor who is also trained is going to help you to think critically about your coaching practice. So really important, really important to have a supervisor. Thank you, Barbara. And anyone who's listening who is interested in coaching supervision can check out the Barefoot website. We've got a section on the website which is which is devoted to all the different types of coaching supervision we offer. But sort of in short, we talk about at Barefoot there being three sort of core purposes to coaching supervision. The first is formative, an opportunity to actually learn about yourself and your tendencies, your practice to develop and hone your skills. Normative being actually I'm sharing these things with my supervisor and I'm left with a sense of feeling that this is okay, this is this is normal. <laughs> and then restorative, you know, lastly being that we leave coaching supervision feeling restored and re-energized and ready to go back out there and, and make the difference that we make, hopefully to the lives of the people that we touch through the work that we do. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and I like what you just said about that restorative piece as well, because, you know, sometimes when I've been to supervision, I come back thinking I've kind of left it somewhere. Yeah. So, or I've been able to share it in a way that makes me feel unburdened. So I, I love that. I, I love like that, that piece as well. You know, another element to, to supervision and probably touches on the formative, normative and particularly the restorative is the idea that that is a confidential space. Just as the client coach relationship is confidential, the supervisor coach relationship is, is confidential as well. And that's really important to mention. We've got to talk about your book, which is here and it's absolutely gorgeous. The Model Black, available through your website and also Amazon. How did the book come to be? The book has been growing in gestation probably for about 20 years. Wow. So it's been there for a long time. I did a, a master's in training and performance management and my dissertation was on objectivity in performance management. And at that time, this is going back almost 20 years, I interviewed a whole host of black leaders and heard about their experience. And I thought this isn't out there anywhere. Wow. So that was kind of sitting with me and actually Interesting enough, Barefoot plays a part in everything. So when I arrived at the Barefoot programme, again, it was still there. And I was thinking, I've got to write this book. I've left Ashridge. One of the reasons that I did that was, was to give me space to do things that I wanted to do. And when I was doing the Barefoot programme, I got lots of coaching around the book, which was phenomenal as Fabulous. well. Lots of people, lots, <laughs> lots of great coaching. So it's been there for a long while. I wanted to write something that helps individuals and organisations work with difference through an understanding of the lived experience of black people, primarily in, in the UK. Mm. So that was what I wanted to do with the book. Mm. 
And if I go back to the description of the book that's on your website and on Amazon, it talks about this book being the first meaningful analysis of the hidden success stories of black British leaders in organisations. And I'm interested in that, the first meaningful analysis of these stories. Yes, because I think what I hope I've done in the book is allowed people to talk about their de facto success strategies. And, and what I mean by that is I've tried to understand how black leaders really navigate their work environments. So this book isn't a checklist that says, here's how you are successful. It's a book that says, actually, if I'm going to be successful as a black leader, here are the things that I've had to do. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, I've had to adjust, I've had to adapt, I've had to give up parts of myself. I talk about squaring, so becoming more like the majority population. I talk about self-silencing. I talk about softening, being, you know, taking off some of the things that would make you more black in inverted commas. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about a meaningful analysis, the intention was really to think about what are these people really doing? What's behind what they're saying, not even just what they're saying, really trying to dig into their real experiences. And, and I think what came out of it, which is also quite beautiful, is that these people are not victims. They're not complaining, oh, isn't it awful being black? No, they're saying, I'm black. I find myself in an environment, I find myself in an organisation where I have to succeed. So I read that landscape and I work out what does that require of me and I do it. I don't complain about it. Quite often I realise it can take a toll on me and I think a, a number of them talked a little bit to that. And what they didn't want is for this to be, ain't it awful? This is, mm. it's challenging and somehow we make it work. And we make it work because what's the alternative? Yes. Yeah, that's a really helpful comment as well. Yes. What is the alternative? What is the alternative? So, yes. yes. It comes with the territory. It's part of the deal, you know? Yes. And I, again, I can only talk about my own experience as a gay man. I can't mm. change who I am. And I'm this person in this organisation mm. and I want to get on or at least get on as well as the people around me. Therefore, I will flex and I'll adapt. Exactly. And that flexing and adapting, it may require more from some people than from others. And some may choose to do it, some may choose not to do it. Yes. In a way, we have choice and we don't have choice because we can choose not <laughs> we, we can choose not to do it. And there are power structures, aren't there, yes. that then might work against us. So I guess there's a, a degree of honesty and pragmatism in that as well. Yes. Can we talk about the timeliness of it? Because it was recommended by the Financial Times as a timely exploration of race in the workplace. And the word timely, to me anyway, feels significant, is it? Yes, in the sense that it came out almost a, a, a year after the George Floyd issue exploded really into, into the world. And timely in that that then made it okay to talk about race, yeah. or at least it did for a while. Let's see how that evolves, whether that momentum, we're able to maintain that momentum. But I think timely in that sense, and timely in that there isn't really another book that where you really do have the candid experiences of Black people, where they're really 
peeling away parts of themselves and talking about their everyday experiences with a degree of lovely balance to me of honesty, pragmatism and optimism. All of those three things, I think, what certainly what I found as I interviewed the leaders for the book. Yes. And part of that, perhaps, you know, I'll, I'll never really know, but I offered to all of them the opportunity to be named or not named. Yes. And some of them said, I want you to name me for that part, but I don't want you to name me for that part. Yes. Yeah, because they've all still got careers. A lot of them are still invested in the organisations that they work in as well. And and to that point about names, I mean, this is a who's who of people in the business world. Even if we just look at the comments on the first page, we've got executive board members from Randstad, the chief digital officer from Microsoft, country president of AstraZeneca, you know, the list goes on and on. Managing director at BT. I guess what that shows me is it doesn't matter which industry you're in which sector, which part of the country, the themes that you talk about in the book, the experiences that through your writing you're able to, to share with people, stories that may well be being shared for the first time. This is widespread. Mm. This is every organisation down every street on every business park like ours in the country. And that's that feels incredibly powerful for me. Yes, yeah. And you're absolutely right, because it is there in just about every organisation. And each organisation is at its own level of maturity. Hmm. Some organisations are really very forward thinking. They're having all kinds of conversations around difference, whether it's visible difference, invisible difference. And there are other organisations who are really embryonic hmm. in their they're thinking around this who really don't know where to start. And, you know, one of the things I, I say about the book is, you know, the book is actually written for a white audience or for a non-black audience. And it is for people who say, I, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to, to say when it comes to discussing race at work. That's yes. who it's aimed at. And interestingly enough, the black people who have read it have said what it gives them is the vocabulary to talk about their difference. Yes. One of the things that I highlighted in here is that you say, it's okay to call me black. <laughs> Hello. It's not a surprise. It's, a, no, it's, not, it's, not, it's not, but, but it, how interesting you bring that up. Because literally yesterday, and I won't say who it was, but someone said to me, I've given my manager your book. And I was sitting in a meeting and I said, oh, it's that black woman. And my manager said, I know it's okay to call her black. But he felt comfortable in that space, yes. having read the book. Although it, it feels so obvious, sometimes it's not so obvious no. for people who are not black to say, well, how do I refer to you? Yes, yes, absolutely. And you talked about momentum earlier, and I feel slightly uncomfortable asking this question because I have a, a strong sense of feeling that responsibility to fix problems relating to difference do not lie with the people who are different. And at the same time, I'm interested in your view on what organisations can be doing more of mm. to maintain that momentum that you described. Yes, and I can't agree with you more. I mean, the, the reason the book is not aimed at a black audience is because if we're going to make change happen, it requires organisational culture change. And organisations need to embrace this not as a series of initiatives, of tick box activities, but actually to say, what is the culture we want to create within this organisation that will allow people who feel they are 
different, whatever that means, mm. to feel at home, for us all to feel at home, for us all to feel comfortable in this organisation. What then is the shift that needs to happen? And what does that then require from people at each level of the organisation? Yes. And, you know, we know through to a lot of the work that we do that often if there is somebody very senior in the organisation who passionately believes in this and who already steps into acting in the way that they want other people to act, that can be so powerful in itself. Yes. You talked about those structures and hierarchies. And of course, we look to those above us for guidance for how we should be, how we should act. And there is incredible power in, mm. in modelling the behaviours that we want to see in an organisation those really positive behaviours anyway. Absolutely. You know, it's the same with children, isn't it? If you can tell them something, but if you're not behaving in that way, it completely loses its power. And we see it sometimes too often in organisations. So real space there for, for people to be different. And being different requires you to do work on yourself. So, you know, I've come at this from being someone who's done work with leaders for over 20 years to help them become the best leader they can be. Mm. And what we're inviting leaders to do now is to say, being the best leader also requires you to think about how you can embrace difference. Yeah. That's a, and it's an additional leadership skill. That's what we're requiring. And it requires work. That's mm. what we're demanding. And it requires work. Absolutely. We've talked throughout our conversation actually about the power of writing as a way of understanding and cementing experiences and learning. I'm interested in how that showed up for you, writing this book, going back through all of those interviews and compiling it. What was that experience like? In some ways, it was energising and in some ways it was painful. So I did, for this particular book, I had the idea 20 years ago and the research for the Model Black was done mainly during and after lockdown. Right. So all the interviews were done virtually. We built a hut at the back of the garden where I then, that became my kind of writing space and where we had walls with space where I could just put all of the, the findings. Because, yes. you know, we all know when we write books, when it comes together in a book, it looks like that was the way it was meant to be. <laughs> but as you're writing it, as you're hearing all of these experiences, how do you start to frame them? You know, one of the chapters I write in there is about the jolt, moments where you, you think you're a part of the majority and everyone's treating you the same way. And then something happens that jolts you out of that. Yes. Now, that came from reading lots of experiences which people talk to me about. And I have to be honest, it was actually my oldest daughter that says, Mummy, that sounds like a jolt. And I thought, oh, it's a great concept. Well, take that. So exactly, take that. So from qualitative interview to book is a long process that requires you to read the interviews over and over again. Really think about what are the themes that are emerging? What are the similarities? What are the differences? And also ensuring that you don't bring too much of your own lens to it, huh. that you really are open to what these people are saying. You're not trying to fit it into ideas, boxes, concepts that already existed. Yes. How true to the words of the individual, were you able to stay? Or did you find, or were you tempted to round off the edges? I was not tempted to round off the edges at all. What I was very conscious of 
was that people had entrusted me with their stories. People, when I interviewed them, I remember one person said, Barbara, I've never, ever shared this with anyone before. Yeah, so people were entrusting me with deep memories, meaningful experiences that they'd had, sometimes trauma mm -hmm. that they'd experienced. So I was very conscious that I wanted to share it in a way that allowed those people to tell their stories, but didn't trivialize them, also didn't embarrass those people in mm. any way. So one of the things I did do was everyone who agreed to be named, I sent them back the materials that I was going to use in the book where their name was going to be used. And even some of the people that said, well, you can use that, but don't name me. I sent that back to them. Right. And do you know, I think I may have had the occasional sentence change, the occasional word change, but they were very comfortable. They felt that was their voice. Yes. So that was really important in that process. I love that. And that's an approach that we try to model here as well, especially with these podcasts, mm. because especially when we are sharing parts of ourselves, mm. we have to feel safe mm. in order to share. And what mm. might seem like a really, really small thing when you see it in print can and may actually be really important to somebody or, you know, quite a big trigger for them. And that's why having empathy, creating safe environments, promoting psychological safety is so important, especially in coaching. And of course, you've experienced it there in the written word as well. Absolutely. And it's so interesting you say that because one of the things I've been doing is, you know, doing a lot of articles also around the book. And, you know, I did have one experience where I wrote an article and one of the sentences was taken out of context. And I thought, that's not that's not in the spirit. And I hadn't seen the title of that article. So these things can happen and they can happen inadvertently. They're not intentional. So I think there is something really important about the individually involved being allowed to ensure that that is their voice, that somebody hasn't taken it out of context or, or written something different or said something mm -hmm. um, that makes it sound different. And how wonderful then that the people that have shared their stories in your book did so with such a wonderful custodian of their words <laughs> and the model black as we've said is available on amazon also your website barbarabandaconsulting.co.uk and from routledge the publisher and from the publisher wonderful and i can say this <laughs> this is a book that should be on the desk of every white ceo in this country so let's make that the target <laughs> that, that, thank you thank you very much thank you so we've talked about how you came to coaching, your experience mm -hmm. of coaching, how you're using coaching in the work that you do now. I'm interested in what you think or what you would like this next period of your career to look like for you. What do you think is next? I feel I'm, in many ways, I'm still on the same mission that I was on 20 years ago in the sense that I want to make whatever you consider an organisation to be, a wonderful place for people to learn, grow, work, and where necessary, make money. Yeah, make money for themselves, make money for the organisation. So I think that hasn't changed. What I really want to do now is really start to think about how we can shift organisations, really start to make some real 
culture change. And again, it's a word that's thrown about, yes, culture change, we're going to change our culture, but really change it, not just talk about changing it, really shift it in a way that makes the organisation more inclusive. That's, I think, where I've got to now in my work. That's one element. I think there's another element, really, about, you know, now that I've, you know, to borrow your word, now that I've come out as black, yeah, so <laughs> le le late in life, now, now that I've done that, there is work that I want to do with black leaders. And that's not about fixing black leaders. I think, you know, we've said that. That's not about fixing black mm -hmm. leaders at all. But there is equity work that still needs to be done around how do you ensure that black people in organisations have the same opportunities to be promoted, to get to whatever level they're able to get to within an organisation. So that's also work that I'm really, really passionate about. And the one-to-one -one coaching, I'll, I'll never lose that. I'm also passionate about really helping individuals to shift because is there such thing as an organisation? Not really. It's made up of lots of individuals and it's in shifting individuals that we shift organisations. So all of those things I think are important to me as I go forward. I love that you mentioned the word equity. And of course, equity is so important in organisations. And this idea that equality being giving everyone the same thing, mm. treating everybody in an organisation the same, but actually, if we're not all starting from the same, you know, starting block, then all we're doing is just highlighting those inequalities or that difference. Whereas the idea of equity being giving groups of people in organisations what they need to be on a level playing field with the other people around them. So it's a really important differentiator that I try to make mm. when I hear people talking about equality. And with you mentioning equity, it felt important for me to share that. Yeah, no, I think it is important. And it's something we've seen quite a lot with, with women, whether there are specific training programs for women, whether there are particular initiatives for women, we've seen that work really successfully in some organisations. So what work are we doing around people of colour in that same area? I think there's still scope for work there. There totally is. And a brilliant place to start, of course, is with the book. And then not just yeah. with the book, but then with a conversation around the book. Absolutely. And the book is exactly that. It's an invitation to having a conversation, an invitation to open up a conversation around difference. Fabulous. When you're not doing all of this work, this incredibly important work, working with organisations, individuals, writing, how do you like to spend your time? You know, it's it's really funny because my husband often says, you haven't got any hobbies, Barbara. He, he's, he's, he's got lots of hobbies and he always says, well, when you have space, you do another qualification or you, you read another book another or, you degree. Do, or decide you want to, exactly, or you decide you want to write a book. So that's what my husband would say. So in many ways, I've not been the best at developing outside interests over the years. I've not been the best at that. You could argue that maybe I'm so passionate about my work that that energises me to the extent that that has become less important. I mean, I've raised three girls alongside my husband, so they've <laughs> been really important. Yeah, they've taken a lot of time, a lot of energy, and, and that's been fabulously rewarding. So I've spent a lot of the time when I'm not working, I'm doing that. The other thing I do do, I do go to the gym, but equally people say, but you're in there as if you want to achieve something, Barbara. <laughs> and, and, and one of the things, you know, I've tried to do much more now is to be more mindful in the gym. 
Right. So this isn't about getting through the exercises, Barbara. This is about being present, focusing on yourself and taking some time out to be with yourself as well. How interesting. And of course, in coaching, we talk about focusing on the process, not the product. Exactly. Exactly. So, yes. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I'm glad that you went there as well after you shared you seemingly not having all that many hobbies, because we could flip that and say, actually, through the work you've done on self, you have cultivated your work around the stuff that makes you feel like you. Oh, that's so beautifully put. I'm not sure I'd know there's a follow-up sentence about that. That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if there's a follow-up sentence to this next question, which is, I'm interested in, as a way of closing us out, what you would like to leave our listeners with. It can be anything at all. I'd like to leave them with the importance of continually doing work on yourself. It's a journey, not a destination. I think that's what I'd say. Perfect. And what better way to close out our conversation, Barbara? It's been an absolute joy and a privilege. Thank you for spending time with me. And thank you very much for asking me, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then be sure to subscribe to get alerts each time we release a new episode. Just search Barefoot Coaching Podcast wherever you get yours. Oh, and if you aren't already following us on social media, then do just search for Barefoot Coaching. <laughs>